You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder in My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a 24-year-old woman found nude and dead in the trunk of a car in Dallas, Texas in 1985, possibly with a belt around her neck. Despite the overwhelming appearance of foul play, police have danced back and forth over the better part of four decades, refusing to fully investigate the case as a homicide. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting Patreon.com slash TheMurderMyFamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Catherine Diane Mowry was born on February 5, 1961, in Kansas, to Catherine and James Mowry. Katrina, as she was known to friends and family, had five siblings, three brothers, Jim, Michael, and Mark, and two sisters, Joanne and Deborah. We don't know much about Katrina's life in Kansas, but she grew up in the Lawrence area, and as a teenager, she gave birth to a baby boy who died when he was less than a year old. When Katrina was 18, she left Kansas looking for a new path outside of the Sunflower State. In January 1984, 22-year-old Katrina found herself in Kansas City, Missouri, where she worked as a waitress at a hotel. One night when she was driving on a slick road, she lost control of her car driving off an overpass and down an embankment. 
She was ejected from her car and wound up unconscious, just a couple feet from a busy railroad track that was frequently used by freight trains. A police helicopter randomly flying over the crash site just happened to spot the glow of Katrina's headlights in the darkness and flew in for a closer look. When they realized what happened, they dispatched emergency personnel, and they were able to rescue Katrina. She had no memories of the accident and had suffered neck injuries and possibly broken bones in her back, but she was thankful to have been rescued. She told the Kansas City Star, It's a miracle. It's hard to believe. I'm just very thankful. By the summer of 1985, Katrina, who was now 24 years old, lived in an apartment building near Irving, Texas. She apparently had bounced back and forth between Kansas, Missouri, and Texas, spending time in Dallas and Irving. As with much of Katrina's life, we don't know a lot. But with most of her family back home in Kansas, it seems as if Katrina may have fallen in with some shady people and reportedly got into the drug scene as a low-level drug dealer. Despite the distance between her and her family, she often drove home to Kansas to visit, sometimes driving the car of a man that she had some sort of relationship with. It was in this man's car that a shocking mystery would unfold, and almost 40 years later, answers as to exactly what happened remain out of reach. On June 25, 1985, an employee at an apartment building in an area of Dallas called the police to report a suspicious car parked in the alley in the 200 block of South Lancaster Road. The caller stated there was a foul odor coming from the car. Police arrived and upon popping the trunk of the 1978 Ford LTD, made a gruesome discovery. They found the decomposing nude body of a young woman wrapped in a sheet. Some reports say that there's a belt wrapped tightly around the neck of the woman. The medical examiner determined that there was no indication of sexual assault, nor were there any drugs in her system. The medical examiner determined that the woman had died two days before she was found. Due to the heat and decomposition, it was hard to determine an exact cause of death. Using dental records, the dead woman was identified as 24-year-old Katrina Mowry, and police were tasked with reaching out to Katrina's family back in Kansas to break the news to them. Back in Dallas, police began their investigation. The car Katrina was found in was traced back to the man that she was in some kind of relationship with. This man, who has never been publicly identified, told authorities that Katrina had taken his car to visit her family in Kansas. She had used his car for such trips before, so he didn't think anything was wrong when he didn't see Katrina for a couple days. This man reportedly had an alibi for the day Katrina died. According to Katrina's family, she actually was scheduled to visit her family in Kansas right before her death. But just before making the trip, she got into an argument with her sister Deborah. Katrina hung the phone up on Deborah, and Deborah just thought that they would talk and make up when Katrina got to Kansas, but Katrina never arrived. Katrina's body and the car she was discovered dead in were found in a rough part of Dallas known for crime. It wasn't the area of Dallas where Katrina lived. Following the medical examiner's autopsy, Katrina Mowry's body was sent home to Kansas and she was cremated and her ashes interned in Oak Hill Cemetery in Lawrence, close to her family. Katrina's family tried to move on and turn their attention to trying to figure out what happened to her and who was responsible. Authorities believe that Katrina was involved in the drug world in Dallas. At first, they believed they were dealing with an overdose, and media reports spread that she had overdosed on cocaine. But the police theory clashed with the toxicology reports that showed Katrina had no drugs in her system. Then the police seemed to shift gears and came to believe that Katrina had taken her own life, something that seems ridiculous to me as well as many other people. It was clear that police seemed to be making a rush to judgment and not really looking at all the possibilities. 
perhaps diminishing Katrina's death because she was involved in the drug scene. If police had looked at the facts and clues closer, they would have possibly realized that Katrina may be a homicide victim. Some glaring and troubling things stood out. For one thing, Katrina was legally blind and couldn't see well, and certainly couldn't drive without glasses. Yet her glasses were found back in her apartment, and not with her in the car that she was recovered in, so she certainly couldn't have driven there herself. Also in Katrina's apartment, police had discovered Katrina's packed suitcase, it appeared as if she had prepared for her trip to Kansas, but never got a chance to load the things into her car that she was taking with her. Since Katrina's family was back home in Kansas, they didn't know a lot of details about Katrina's day-to-day life in Dallas. They racked their brains trying to think who may have taken Katrina's life and discarded her in the trunk of a car like a piece of trash. Katrina's sister, Deborah, felt that a man known as was responsible for Katrina's death, and it's been alleged that Katrina sold opioid pills that she had a prescription for, possibly as a result of her car accident. Known to have a crush on Katrina. According to reports, authorities were unable to locate this but in reality, it seems he was arrested and incarcerated for a murder that happened a year after Katrina died. He had an extensive criminal record, possibly for sexual assaults on children. It's not clear if police ever did locate or question about Katrina's death and it's also unclear if he's still in prison or even alive. What is clear is that police didn't waver from their belief that Katrina's death wasn't a homicide. A 1985 Dallas Morning News article quoted Dallas Homicide Sergeant H.M. Rice as saying, We speculate that she died on somebody, and they just got scared and put her in the trunk. In short, they speculated that Katrina died of natural causes or of a drug overdose, and that someone close to her panicked and dumped her body in the car. Like the suicide theory, this seems ridiculous to most people. Katrina was a healthy woman in her 20s, so dying of natural causes seems highly unlikely. And if Katrina died of a drug overdose, why were there no drugs found in her system? And what about some of the reports that said that Katrina had a belt wrapped around her neck? In the same 1985 Dallas Morning News article, Homicide Sergeant Rice went on to say one of the most ridiculous things yet. I'm quoting here. It's not going to be classified as a murder because we don't know who put her in there. Newsflash, Sergeant Rice. Just because you don't know who commits a homicide or disposes of a body and puts it in the trunk doesn't mean it's not a homicide. I'm a big supporter of law enforcement, but when I hear about cases handled the way Katrina's case was handled, it's hard not to get frustrated. So you can only try and imagine how frustrated Katrina's family must be. And sadly... Katrina's death wasn't the only shocking and violent one her family would have to face. In 1993, Katrina's sister Joanne was also killed in Dallas. She was found at the Linfield Motel just five miles away from the spot her sister was found eight years earlier. Her throat had been slit with the jagged edge of a broken beer bottle. Thankfully, Joanne's killer was apprehended, and although I don't have all the details in her case, I hope to present Joanne's story in a future episode. Katrina's niece, born after her death, was named after her. Katrina's mother, Deborah, never got over the loss of her sister and chose to honor her memory by passing on her name to her daughter. And to honor the aunt she never knew, Katrina has taken up the quest for justice for her aunt. In 2021, for the first time, she requested a copy of Katrina's death certificate from the Texas Department of State Health Services. She told the Oak Cliff Advocate, I wanted something in writing, some sort of documentation in black and white that I could see for myself. Though the family had been told repeatedly that Katrina had taken her own life 
or died of a drug overdose or of natural causes, the official death certificate lists undetermined under cause of death. More bad news for the Maori family followed. Deborah, the last of the Maori girls, passed away, deeply saddened by the knowledge that both of her sisters likely died as murder victims. Some would say that she died of a broken heart. It was the most recent tragedy for this family, and now all three of the Maori girls were gone. But Katrina Marshall pressed on, more determined than ever, to get to the bottom of what happened to her Aunt Katrina. In 2022, she received a copy of the toxicology report, and she saw in black and white that there were no drugs in Katrina's system at the time of her death. Katrina started a petition asking investigators to actually look into the details of the case, and in March 2023, Dallas police reopened the investigation into Katrina Marshall's death. That's a start but there still may be a long road ahead to get justice for Katrina. Time is the enemy in older cases. Reports get lost. Evidence deteriorates. Witnesses forget things. Suspects die off. But Katrina isn't letting that stop her as she continues to press on and hopes that anyone out there with information will come forward. If you have any information about the murder of Katrina Mowry, you can call the current Dallas detective in charge of Katrina's case, Sergeant Girdler, at 214 214- 671-3661 or you can send an email to coldcase at dallaspolice.gov Katrina has her own theory about who killed her aunt but to ensure her safety she doesn't want to identify them publicly but hopefully police will check that person out carefully as well as any other potential suspects I sat down to talk with Katrina Maury's niece her namesake Katrina about the mysterious death of the aunt she never met and her efforts to get justice That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Katrina, and thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your Aunt Katrina's case with us. Hi. Uh, Happy to have you here. Uh, Your your aunt's case is still unsolved. There's a a lot of questions that need answering. Uh, I know you've sort of picked up the torch uh, for your aunt's case and and I'm sure you want to see justice done I'm thinking this is something you really feel strongly about absolutely of course please let listeners know you know obviously this can't this case happened so long ago how old were you when this case happened I was not even born yet okay I am named after the victim I am her living legacy in her memory I was named after her by my mom so that that's sounds like you know, being her namesake and stuff. It sounds like this would be pretty important um, to to carry on that torch and and try and get justice for her. I, I'm thinking that everything you learned about your aunt, you had to hear from the people that knew her and family members and stories that you heard. Can you tell us a little about your aunt, and what she was like, based on what you've learned and what people have told you? Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, she was the first um, of two aunts that were brutally murdered, actually. Um, She was from Kansas, which is where we're from. Um, She moved to Texas in, I want to say, like 1980-ish. And with my other aunt, Joanne, which is the other one that was also murdered, and um she was killed in 1985 um she was very close with my mom and her other sister 
they were all stair-stepped like a year apart. So one was born in 1961, one in 62, and then my mom, who's the baby, in 63. So they were just like so close, both in age, you know, and just, you know, the best friends as well, that they were like inseparable. Now, did she stay, you know, the rest of your family was in, in Kansas and she was living in the in the Dallas area. Um, did she go there? What brought her there? Was it work or relationship? What, what made her decide to go there? Well, actually, um, their biological father uh, lived in Dallas at the time. Well, for most of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, actually. So that's where he was. And they weren't really super close with him, but they knew Dallas well from, you know, the times they had been there visiting or whatever. Plus it wasn't, it's not very far from where we're from, which is Lawrence, Kansas. Um, And so it's like maybe a five or six hour drive. So it's, it's just far enough to be moving away, but also short enough of a drive, you know, in a day, (laughs) kind of a, a distance and in the 80s i know dallas was a happening hopping town so it, a lot of basically action. your aunt could still visit family and stuff she was close enough to to go home and, and visit family when she wanted to exactly and my mom went there a lot as well they were always back and forth always okay now well, right before your your aunt was killed in 1985 what was going on in her life as far as you know work relationships that kind of stuff what what was her life like during that time well um i know that she was only 24 when she was killed so she wasn't very old at all she was just in her prime i guess you could say um i know that mm, within a year maybe two before she was killed she had been in a semi-serious car accident. And I know that ties into all of this in some ways, and maybe more than I even know, but um, I know she got injured pretty badly in that, enough to where she was in a wheelchair for a short amount of time. She obviously recovered eventually and didn't need it anymore, but apparently it was a pretty serious accident um and you you think that this somehow factored into her death can can you elaborate on that a little bit well according to the dallas police department um the vehicle she was found in her body was found in um was wrecked at the time when they found her body in it, but it wasn't her car. And this was her boyfriend's vehicle, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And I'm not sure if, I'm not really sure if they classified themselves as, I guess, boyfriend and girlfriend status for relationship, but they had um, some kind of relationship. Gotcha. Formal or informal. I don't, I don't know. 
and w- without naming this person that she was uh dating or had some kind of relationship whatever you would call it um what did your family know of this person did they know him well did they know you know anything about him as far as any kind of uh history criminal history anything like that well i know well now i know um but in the past i don't think that anyone in the family besides my mom had any idea what exactly was going on or not going on Uh, my mom since she did go to dallas quite often she knew all the people and you know groups and types of individuals that were associated with her my aunt i mean and so my mom was very uh vocal with me anyway in telling me that stuff like we had been trying to work on solving the case together for well my whole life actually (laughs) i was born into it by taking her name i guess (laughs) inheritance yeah so it's been something that's sort of been important your whole life basically yeah i just didn't realize it until i was older i don't think like i just it was kind of just the normal for me to go hang out at the cemetery with my mom and eat lunch but i didn't realize the significance at the time until i was older and so it sounds like your mom really took uh her her death rough absolutely very rough my aunt Katrina or Catherine is uh, what she was born with and ended up changing her name um, to Katrina. But my mom was just like, my mom idled her. It was, you know, who she looked up to and they were the closest out of all the siblings with each other. Mm. And so she was murdered in 1985. And then I came along in um, 1991 and then my other aunt was murdered in 1993. So I met one, didn't meet the other. But the second one, that is solved. Okay. Died, so a lot of tragedy then, uh, unfortunately, befell your family. Oh man, yes, for sure. It's a domino effect, is what I call it. So let's go to June of 1985, and that's when your aunt was killed details wise, you know, her body was found inside the trunk of of a car. Um, Can you walk us through the finding of her body and how that sort of unfolded? Yeah. From, I mean, I've gathered from a lot of sources at this point. Um, None of this stuff was ever, I guess you could say made publicly available to anyone in my family. Um, I mean, we initially believed it was a suicide at first, and then I guess the media then reported it multiple times as a cocaine overdose. Um, and I didn't, I didn't order the autopsy and toxicology until like 2021 or 2020, maybe. Um, so I just recently actually obtained all of that stuff. Um, my mom never got to see any of that, so. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a mess now, and almost more questions than before. Um, but they found her body. Uh, she was nude, no clothes on. She was wrapped up in a bed sheet. Um, 
And apparently she was wrapped up pretty good. And by pretty good, I mean, like, almost, you know, meticulously, like, someone was being very careful or, you know, they took their time almost. Like, they weren't panicked, it seems like. Um, And then also, her toxicology report came back clean and clear of drugs, any and all drugs. Um, There was a little bit of alcohol in our system, but it was still below the legal limit, technically. And I know that that can also come from, you know, decompositional fluids and whatnot. Um, And there was also um, a belt um, around her neck. So this is... That nobody... No one knew that. (laughs) Okay, okay. And and this is all stuff you've found out sort of since, you know, you've been oh, yeah. piecing this all together. Um, it, you know, so obviously you, from the sounds of what you're describing, you know, I know a couple theories the police had early on was one you mentioned that she died of a drug overdose or that she took her own life, that she somehow put herself in in that trunk the way that she was found, which sounds kind of absurd um but yes, <laughs> you know it sounds like the, the police had some pretty uh crazy theories early on uh, about what happened to her as opposed to um her death being a homicide yeah i think honestly they didn't want any more negative light shed on that city at that point in time because you know the dallas the dallas drug war of the 80s was going on pretty hardcore at that point they were, you know, just mid in the mid and thick of it. Um, I also know that, you know, I'm not sure if it was like, you know, purposely or not, but I think there was also, you know, some stigma or I guess maybe bias um, that maybe some of the people she was associated with, you know, they were involved in, you know, the drug scene in Dallas. And so maybe they kind of wrote it off and didn't really give it, you know, the full attention it really like needed or deserved. Yeah. As opposed to someone that may have been like a a housewife and PTA mom that would have been found in the same condition. They would have, (laughs) they would have pulled out all the stops to try and solve it. But it sounds like maybe they said, okay, you know, she's hanging out with some shady people. So, you know, we're not going to, go to the ends of and the earth the to part solve of town, it. Yeah. yeah. The part of town she was found in was also very, um, notorious for that kind of stuff as well. Very, actually, I'm pretty sure it's still pretty, um, a little, you know, rough in that area. And, and also back in the eighties, especially there was a lot of, um, like racially motivated, you know, violence, of some sort and you know she was also you know a white woman in a predominantly hispanic and you know black neighborhood full of crime and drugs in 1985 and you know one of the worst parts of dallas texas and so you know a lot of that time period and timing all really plays into a lot of it as well i think in my opinion um of course that probably wouldn't fly now <laughs> but yeah. things have changed a lot as well um 
but she also lived 30 minutes away from where her body was found. Okay, so this was still Dallas, just a different area of Dallas, basically. Right, Dallas, I mean, Dallas is pretty huge, but... Huge, yeah, um, she yeah. Lived, yeah, she lived up north, more towards, like, Irving, Texas, like, um, kind of by where the stadium area is or used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the north, like, eastern, maybe, I think, part of Texas it was, but she was found um, down south in the Oak Cliff neighborhood of Dallas. Okay, so she's found in the trunk of a car and and it doesn't take long to figure out who this car belongs to it belongs to this guy that she had some kind of relationship with whether it was dating or whatever whatever you want to term it is so it, they identify as his car they go to him what's his story as far as you know his car being there with his with um your aunt's body in the back of it um well She was actually planning on making a trip home to visit Lawrence, Kansas, Um, right after her body was found, actually. She was supposed to leave the next morning um, because they even actually found her bags packed at her apartment and everything. Like, so she had no intention of killing herself anyway, because it was pretty obvious that, you know, all of her bags or suitcases or whatever, you know, we're all packed up and ready to go home for a visit, <laughs> you know, still when they went back and, you know, looked and she was also legally blind without her glasses. So she could not have driven herself all the way across town with the no glasses anyways. Okay. So her, her glasses were not found with her. Exactly. They were still on her nightstand at home. Okay. So, so this, this guy that that who owns the car, he tells police that he he was under the impression that she was borrowing his car to go visit family back in Kansas. The police find her bags packed, sort of backing up his story. Um, but obviously, she didn't go to Kansas. She she was killed and she was in this trunk. Um, how closely did police? talk to this guy and see if his story did indeed check out well i know from the news article it said that um they had traced the ownership of the vehicle and that it had done um a lot of quote hand changing (laughs) so kind of just going from one owner to the next to the next i guess which is i guess common in you know, criminal activities and whatnot. Um, They said it had five owners already, and this was a 1978 Ford LTD, and they found her body in 1985. So this car would have only been, you know, seven years old at most, and it already had five owners at that point. So... You know, if you put that into perspective, that's actually quite a few owners for that little amount of time. Um, and they also mentioned that it, the car did have five owners and that the first four owners had cooperated in the investigation, which is obvious when you say it that way, <laughs> you know. 
Well, what about the fifth one? Like, obviously, the fifth one is going to be the last owner of it. So, does that mean they're not cooperating or? Yeah. So, so it sounds almost like this car is sort of a, uh, like a car people sell with each other without actually flipping the title over and going through the proper steps. They just sort of say, hey, here's, you know, do you want to buy this car? And they, it sounds like that kind of thing. Am I correct? I mean, yeah, that's kind of what I gather from it. But uh, I also don't really get told a lot of those kinds of details from the investigation. So okay. I have, I'm left to make assumptions at that point, which I don't like to do. I'd rather just have the facts, good or bad, you know. Sure. So, so one way or another, they figure they they follow all the the steps and they find out that the current owner, the last person to own the car, is the the guy that your aunt was in some kind of relationship with. Yes. However, it is not the suspect that my mom has always consistently and without hesitation, you know, convinced herself of who it was, but. I think that it was probably, you know, a multiple person operation of some kind at this point. Okay, so so let's uh, let let's recap a little bit here. So we mentioned that the police right away think, okay, this is a suicide, or or no, this is a drug overdose. But in reality, from from the medical reports and stuff that you're able to get. That doesn't seem to be the case. Did they? Did the medical examiner give a final conclusion as to what the cause of death was? Um, it is listed as undetermined on the death certificate. Okay. Now, was part of that due to her, the decomposition? They weren't able to, to determine a full cause of death because of her um, decomposition? I mean... Allegedly, but I mean, there, I mean, there's a belt around her neck. I, I, I don't know how someone could do that to themselves. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I, I bring that up because again, and not to be too graphic, yeah. but but when this car was found, someone reported smelling a, a, a bad smell near the car, which is what originally brought attention to it. It's June. It's Dallas. It's got to be hot. Um, so, and how long was she in there before she was found? Uh, yeah, that's another thing that doesn't quite uh, warrant, you know, the the findings. But she, I guess June 23rd is the date that they estimated her date of death to have been. Um, so June 23rd, I think, what was that, a Saturday? Yeah, Saturday night or maybe in, early into Sunday morning. Anyway, so they found her body on the 25th. Okay. So she so, was... Like a day and a half or two days maybe. But, I mean, obviously, of course, you're going to start, you know, there's going to be some decomposition, but I don't think it, it would be that extreme. Sure. And the, the belt around the neck, the fact she's wrapped up in a sheet and locked in a trunk just... I, I don't know where that they would, would even keep get... it more intact anyways. Also, you, like you, the, you would think how tight she was wrapped up in that sheet and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it just, I don't know, a lot of it doesn't honestly make all that much sense to me, but I can tell you that the sexual assault kit 
um, did all come back negative. Okay, so she wasn't sexually assaulted, although she was nude in the car. Yeah, that that to me is interesting, among other things as well. Like I don't, I don't really understand that really, at all. Yeah, and and so we're we're basically going by these weird theories the police had that don't really seem to be, you know, plausible that, that it's a suicide, that it's a, a, um, a drug overdose in the end that they're not able to make a determination, but by the clues, it seems like she was the victim of foul play. Um, what happened? Did the case go cold early on? Did it sort of stall? Well, from what I've gathered, um, it, it seems as though, you know, when they put the cause of death in the newspaper twice, by the way, um, as a drug overdose, you know, two different times, very prematurely and just straight, like, misinformation, and it is what it ended up being anyway, um, you know, it just kind of, I think, it's almost like it was a intended indirect you know plan for kind of turning you know people off from being more suspicious kind of like um almost like an excuse like you know what she was involved with drugs anyway so she probably had it coming kind of a kind it seems like is kind of how they led that and i know that the media kind of worded some of you know the articles in a way that was more fitting for their narrative um i know part of it mentioned my grandmother actually and it said that her mom who lives in kansas told them that she didn't know what the woman had been doing in dallas since she left kansas but that is not like how my grandmother speaks or talks. Like I lived with her for a really long time. That's not how she words things. That's just not the way she would ever say something like that. And so, I mean, honestly, I'm pretty sure I know exactly how it was meant. It was meant like, well, apparently, you know, I don't know what she's been doing since she left. It wasn't like a literal, like, I have no idea what she's been doing since she's been in Dallas. <laughs> she only comes to visit like every single month. <laughs> you know, they just kind of, I think, worded it to where it is something she would have said, but not the way that she said it. So it kind of seems like it made people kind of, you know, well, her mom just like over it, you know, she's just like great figures, like, you know, something like it was normal or whatnot for her. And so it kind of just like biased people's, you know, interest or opinion from the start before it even had a chance. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, did they talk to any of her friends? Did she have any good friends or anyone that was able to fill in any kind of blanks or provide any clues as to what was going on in the, in the final days of her life? I mean, I've actually had to kind of put those clues together based on what I've been able to obtain. And I've had to, you know, I've worked with the district attorney's office quite a bit in this case. Um, and they kind of, 
they were able to obtain an unredacted copy of the police report, which honestly says not much of anything. You got more information from the newspaper article. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's just there's supposedly um, a friend who is reportedly the last person that saw her alive. Um, And she reportedly... Oh, yeah, okay. I'm looking at it right now. It says... I took notes during this conversation, too. Um, Her friend slash possible roommate, I think, um, saw her alive last on Sunday the 23rd at 6.20 a.m., Allegedly. And I guess she provided a written statement to the police saying that. Hmm. So so there are some people that were able to provide some details, it sounds like. If yeah, they're if they're accurate. Okay. <laughs> but I'm not like I know that some like the detectives in the police department, you know, they don't have that part of the of the file. <laughs> But the DA can see that kind of stuff, apparently. Like, it's just like everyone's kind of got these pieces to this puzzle, but everyone's holding them hostage and won't, like, let anyone see their pieces of the puzzle. Like, it's a poker game or something kind of a thing. And it's like, I'll show you yours if you show me mine. (laughs) Or if you show me yours. You know, it's just kind of, it's it's almost like they're playing cat and mouse with the evidence in a sense. It's it's very odd. And also another interesting fact about that, um, the woman who claims to have last seen her alive, um, her name is the same name as the girl in Dallas with the literal exact same name on the exact same day of the exact same year who was kidnapped and murdered in Dallas on that same day. And so anytime you research anything about her, it's overshadowed and overpowered by the girl with the same name that just so happened to be kidnapped and murdered in the same exact city that day. It's really just coincidental. To clarify, it's not the, the friend that knew your, your aunt. It's, it's someone with the same name, though, that was kidnapped and killed. Correct. And it was like a donut shop one of the donut shop girls. Okay. Okay. Um, Jennifer day is her name. Okay. Um, so I, I want to talk a, a little bit about suspects. Now, obviously in these kinds of cases, the police always look at people that might be dating or married um, as, as a potential suspect. Uh, we know obviously because your aunt was found in this guy's car that they had to at least consider him. Um, do you know if he was cooperative? Did he cooperate and, and answer all the questions that he was asked? And, you know, was he followed up with later on? So. Okay. Honestly, he, he was pretty big in the crime scene um, in Dallas, like, well, for the rest of his life and still um, technically, but he probably in all actuality either paid someone 
to, you know, do this kind of thing or, you know, I don't necessarily think that he, he did it himself per se. He kind of, you know, someone in that kind of power with those kinds of, I guess, holds on people that, you know, you have something they want, i.e. drugs. And so they'll do whatever do. you want them to do to get some. <laughs> well, if, if, if your theories right and that's a possibility that he's involved somehow he's not the brightest bulb in the box it sounds like because he let her be found in his car which just would make i would the police... think someone would want their car back <laughs> like yeah i had like a seven-year-old car I, that was pretty nice you know i i'd at least you know want the insurance to like pay for yeah. it and, and and not <laughs> just that but i you know if i'm trying to put my mind in the in, in my self in the place of someone that would do something like this i think if i was involved in in you know murdering someone and putting them in a trunk i definitely wouldn't want it to be in the trunk of my car that's going to come back to me you know because right? it's going to be right on the police radar so it doesn't sound very bright if he was involved in it to to let her be found in his trunk but um then again right some people do some dumb stuff when they're committing crimes or don't fully think things through but um, but that's besides the point. Well, I know so, that he, if it makes it any different, like in your mind, he did have um, other forms of transportation. So it's not like he was just sitting there without a, without any form of transportation or car or anything. Gotcha. You know, yeah. So at that part, I did find out, which kind of made a little more sense, I guess. Um, they said she had actually had possession of the vehicle for like the two weeks prior to her death. Okay. Okay. So, and, and so we're mentioning uh, that this guy has a shady history. We're not naming him by name, but he has a shady history before and after um, her death. Uh, You mentioned a little bit too, that your mom has a theory that it's somebody else that did this uh, to your aunt without sharing that person's name. Can you tell us a little bit about that theory and why your mom thought that somebody else might be involved um my mom yes she of course you know was in and out of dallas all the time and knew my aunts better than anyone and you know whatever mischief they might have been in (laughs) um but it would have been my aunt katrina's um best guy friend um i know that her and that guy they were really close friends and at one point they even lived together as like roommates in Houston at one point. I'm not sure when that was. Um, but I know, or at least I've heard that there was a bit of a, uh, a crush there as in he had, you know, a big crush on her, but, it wasn't necessarily, you know, reciprocated. Um, and my mom thinks that might have, you know, been the motive in that instance, possibly like maybe, you know, a heated argument about it or something could have just, you know, turned deadly that way. You know, no, no theories off the table here. <laughs> Yeah. Um, was regardless, that person it's still illegal to put a body in a car? Of course. 
Sure, sure. Was that person questioned by police and did they cooperate? Um, according to what they told my mom, uh, they couldn't ever find him to question him after that. Wow. Oh. So that's uh that could be somebody very important that wasn't talked to by police then. Well, allegedly, but from what I have found out actually from the DA's office, they gave me a list of the official suspects and he was on there actually. And hmm. I also found his, you know, track record or his rap sheet and he had actually been in trouble for murder in 1986. The year after, so if they couldn't find him to question him, then boy, he was sure right under their noses, that's for sure. Do they know where he is today? As far as you know? <laughs> um, probably better not say that one on the podcast. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we, we, we can definitely steer clear of, of saying that, but, um, you know... Obviously, we don't want to jeopardize anything with the case. So, um, he, he, you know, the point is that we're now what my math is terrible. We're 38, 39 30, years. Yeah, almost 40 years after the fact, her case is still unsolved. I think they, the, the police should be looking, going back to square one and, and examining what possible evidence they have, maybe looking at witnesses again, maybe going back and, you know, questioning potential suspects and stuff. Is any of that being done as far as you know? Yes. Um, I have pretty much, you know, been on their tails for, I mean, nonstop since 2020, which is when I found out um, that they hadn't actually been actively investigating this case this whole time. Um my mom and I were looking into it at the start of the pandemic because, well, we were all stuck at home and uh, whatnot. And so my mom and I started looking into it together. She was very um, emotional and sensitive about about it, of course. I was more of, you know, the one who was, I guess, level-headed and could keep my composure when, you know, speaking about it or talking about it or asking about it or inquiring to authorities about it, you know, my mom would kind of, she was a little unstable there at the end. Um, once we got the death certificate back, I got it back in October of 2020. And whenever she had saw that, um, the cause of death was undetermined following autopsy, toxicology and investigation, um, she killed herself. So I kind of had to carry on by myself after that. Um, she was very vital for information, though. <laughs> um, and then, you know, before that. So it pretty much, I think, broke her for that last time. I don't think she could have taken much more. So good thing, I guess, she can't see a lot of the stuff I've uncovered now. Yeah, it, it just sounds be like rolling over in her grave. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds like a very you know tragic story, and it really affected your your family. And and here you are, you know, all these years later, trying to get the truth, trying to get answers. Um, and it, you know, maybe an uphill battle, but we we know that cases get solved all the time that are twenty, thirty, forty years old. So there's hope, 
um, if if the there's right things are done. There's, I think there this should have been solved. I think if I had all the information that you know authorities have, it would have been solved a long time ago. I don't think it's that hard to solve. I think, you know, someone just didn't really do their due diligence or put two and two together on a lot of this stuff. It's it's really not that hard if you look at the bigger picture, you know, figure these things out because I have the same questions as you and I've really not been able to get any of them answered directly from, you know, the police sources. I've had to kind of go around them one way or the other to get this kind of information, just dragging it out of people, even just like the smallest of details, which, you know, are also the big details sometimes. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. and it seems like they just kind of run you in circles anyway when they do communicate. It's just, you know, uh, well, let me see who the detective is. Let's, let me forward your email to blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, oh, God, here we go uh, again. <laughs> it's just like yeah. no one knows anything about anything. And so they just kind of just say, we're going to give it to someone else and someone else. And then you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, I'll just do it myself. A lot of a lot of steps to go through and a lot of uh, uh, stress, it sounds like, for you to have to deal with all this stuff. I, I think, you know, stick with it because I think your aunt would be proud of you for doing this. And obviously, it sounds like your your mom was, you know, hoping to see some kind of resolution. So I hope somehow you, you hang with this and, and you do find out what happened. Um, I, I think anyone out there listening, you know, it's important that you know, the police will need information, tips, whatever they have. So, you know, anyone has any information, please report it to the homicide unit of the Dallas Police Department at 214-671-3661 or general investigations line at 214-671-3503. And I know that you even take tips and pass them along and you're on what at Twitter at Katrina Marsh 91. Is that correct? That is correct. And also there is an investigator and a detective um, assigned to the case currently that I've been working with. And his name is Jerry Girdler from the Dallas Police Department. And um, tips can also be sent to him as well. Oh, perfect. Well, again, his email is also on their post for the cold case listings because they did actually post it on their social media and, you know, listed as a cold case homicide that they are looking actively into at this time. Well, that's good. At least they're, they're doing some fresh stuff and keeping it out there. So anyone out there listening, if you're in that area, if you have information, please do the right thing and and come forward. Um, I want to thank you for coming on Katrina and discussing uh, this case and and carrying on the fight for your aunt. And again, I hope you find out what happened to her and, and if there's anyone alive to be held accountable, I, I hope they are held accountable. Yes. Thank you. Me too. Fingers crossed. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all new episode of the murder of my family and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, Remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.